This episode is brought to you by the hilarious novel FIFO by Aaron Weston, available on Aaron Weston Author Instagram account. Alright, enjoy the show! Warning, this episode contains adult themes. Alright, enjoy! Hi everyone, and welcome to the Aaron White Show, and I'm your host, Aaron. Today, we have a fantastic guest, Mark Patterson, also known as Panda. So, <laughs> do you want to tell me about your life? Basically, how you grew up, if it was like a happy childhood, not happy? Yeah, um, okay, so I was originally born in Bendigo in Victoria, um, about 150 k's north of Melbourne. Little gold mining town was a really good history, if you get a chance to look the history up of it. Um, moved to Brisbane when I was about a year and a half old uh, with my mother and my older brother and pretty much lived there until 16 and then I hitchhiked to Bendigo in, 2000, in sorry, 1990. Um, essentially growing up, you know, late 70s, early 80s, it was a bit of a hard time, you know, I grew up in a, in a, um, in a emotionally and physically abusive family. Yeah. Uh, my blood father was accused of killing my older sister. We don't know whether, I don't know whether that's true or not, but coming from the people in my family, other than my mother, um, a lot of people say that he was an extremely violent person. So, And apparently he was one of the guys who helped set up all the Lebanese gangs and that in Sydney. So whether that's true or not, I don't know. I've never spoken to him. I've never met him and I never will. Um, Pretty much the same as the rest of my family. I don't really speak much to them. It was I, I, I moved out of home first when I was 15. I dropped out of school, moved out of home and started living in the doorway of a library in a place called Anala in Brisbane. Um, anyone who's from Brisbane knows it's not a very good area. But, uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. The, um, the local locals who used to live there, the Aboriginal people who used to live in the the park used to protect me at night time when I was asleep and I'd give them cigarettes and things like that when I got, whenever I got money and they just look after me. So that was pretty cool. And, um, around 15, I started getting into crime and doing some silly stuff, a lot of gang stuff. And at 16, I decided it was too hard and seen some friends take the wrong way and, you know, ended up dead. And so I stuck the thumb out and started walking down the Bruce highway on my way to Victoria, where my family had moved without telling me. Oh, wow. Hmm. Hey, can you tell me yes. more about this gang stuff? Um, Was it like I, I can't tell you. Or? Yeah, I can't tell you a lot about the crime that was on with it because, um, you know, obviously stuff <laughs> it could be it could be detrimental to certain people. But now we used to do a lot of break-ins and burglaries and stuff, and there was a lot of alcohol. Like I was drinking from the age of fourteen. I was um I was I would leave home with a mate and go out and start drinking. So I was drunk all the time. Um, so we'd be getting into drunken fights with other groups, and that and that led into associating with the wrong people. Um, it was pretty much like a rite of passage to go to jail. Everyone wanted to go to jail. Everyone wanted to be in jail because of the, you know, everyone we looked up to was the criminals. And of course, being at home with, um, with people who thought they were, in my opinion, just a waste of time. You know, I didn't, those people could give me nothing. I could get nothing out of them. All I could get was beatings or, or put down. So I hung out with gangs. I felt welcome with the gangs. I felt comfortable with them. I felt that, um, it, I felt power. Anyone who 
would come near us or any anyone who tried to to come against us would learn not to yeah until we met the wrong gangs and done some stupid stuff that really I, I, I really wish that I hadn't done and that was when my friends started dying and I just went there's two things I can do I can either stick around and end up like them or leave how did so they die were they like shot or stabbed or was it gang on gang yeah, well, a lot of it was gang on gang well I had there's there's three three friends of mine that were were killed um, one of them I can talk about because it wasn't gang related and they found the person who done it yeah um, but two of them were found one of them was found beaten next to his next to his bike and one of them just went missing um, and yeah one of them was killed by his father funnily enough but um yeah um, it was yeah just gang stuff like that they were just it was just the 80s and we were just stupid it was uh, yeah just to get away from <laughs> fun thing was I was getting away from violence to get into violence yeah. And um, the, I suppose the good thing, the good thing about the violence at home was I could learn how to take a punch, and yep. uh, it sort of served me well later on when I started going, getting in the ring and and concentrating on my martial arts and things like that. It was uh, it served me pretty well being able to take a punch. So your dad was in the in the family house until you were fifteen, or when did he leave? No, no, my my blood father. Yeah, my blood father was. Uh, my mother took my older brother and I and ran, um, and we never we never knew him. He was in Bendigo. He was a bit of a businessman. He owned he owned a couple of pool halls and owned a couple of businesses and that. But he was an extremely violent person. So yeah, we just took off. Uh, again, that wasn't. I don't sort of believe much my mother said about him, but I do believe all the other people who said the stuff about him. He was he was a dangerous man. Yeah, so, but yeah, how how old were you then? Was that the sixth day? When... Two. Oh, when you were two. So two. That was really that, yeah, I was born into it. So uh, the, my mother's ex, my mother met this bloke. He was uh, eight years older than us. But oh, he was only a kid. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, so he was only a kid. He was, he was, she was 32 or 33, I can't remember. But she'd go out nightclub and leave us home with my, uh, my younger brother and sister. We were, we were only 10, 11 years old, my older brother and I, and we would have to pretty much raise my younger brother and sister. Yeah. Um, and so we'd be, we'd be home all night by ourselves and all these strange blokes would come around the house and that. And she ended up with this, ended up hooking up with this dude um, who really shouldn't have been put in a situation to be a father of four children at 20 years old, just yeah. too young. And so he didn't know how to control himself. So he, he was very violent. He was, um, we wouldn't, just cop a, you know, we wouldn't cop a little bit of a beating for, for being bad. We'd, we'd be beaten down and told that, you know, if we don't get up and face him, we weren't men and we weren't all this type of stuff. So it was, in some ways, I learned my resilience from that. Um, and I learned how to, like I said before, I learned how to take a beating. Yeah. Um, but he was just a absolute prick. Yeah. I sort of don't blame him for that. I blame the fact that he was put into that situation. Does that make sense? I tell you, it does. Because just imagine me or you at 20, suddenly you're like raising somebody else's kids, especially when they're like 10, 11 years old. It's hard enough raising yeah. your own kids from birth, let alone, well, yeah, I, that's had, right. I had told yeah. when I was 30, so I was a lot more mature than a 20 year old. 
yeah, yeah. No, we we cop a lot of emotional abuse from both him and and my mother, um, and it trickled down. It cop it off the brother and all that, the younger sister, the favourite, and all that type of stuff, and you know, just normal family stuff. Um, the masculinity, being being emasculated, and and that from a very young age took it. I understand now the damage that had done by through the things that I read and, and and the way that I am as a person, I understand the damage that it done. Um, and I vowed never to let my children grow up like that. So no matter how hard it is, I never put my children down. I try to make them the strongest they can be so that they, when they go out into the world, they've got a good fighting chance of being something normal. So I guess it's kind of like yeah. a blessing in disguise. You went through all that turmoil. So then... Fast forward to the future, you could become a better father and make the next generation better with your kids. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's um, my my experience is something that I never want my children to have to go through, and I never want anyone to have to go through. But I, I take the positive out of it. It made me stronger. It made me more resilient. Even though, even though the the depression I suffer and the anxiety and everything I suffer affects my life even now, um, I try not to let my children have to go through that. Can you touch on the depression and anxiety? What's that feel like? Does this pop up every now and again, or do you have suicidal thoughts or how's that work for you? Um, it's, uh, I left school when I was, when, you know, year, year 10. Um, the depression, I didn't recognize it until only a few years ago, but it was, I used to think that I was just, you know, ADD or whatever. And I would jump from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing. I've, I've had so many jobs. I've had so many careers. I've, I've done so many things in my life. And that's all because of the depression. It's People suffer different styles of depression. Mine is essentially that I don't feel that I belong anywhere. Um, I don't feel that people want to know me or, or want to talk to me. And that when I am around people and I start talking. And as you know, you and I work together, you, as you know, when I start talking, I don't stop talking. It's like turning on a tap and everything comes out. That's part of the depression. And then the anxiety that comes on top of that is thinking that I'm constantly annoying people and I'm constantly being the person who's going to be the brunt of their jokes or who's going to be the, the brunt of their um, disrespect. And that's, that's part of it. I, I just, the, the low self-esteem is the biggest part of, of my depression. Um, the suicidal thoughts. Look, I had a friend who who did commit suicide, and being in the industry that we're in, as you know, yeah, the the people tend to target anyone who shows any sign of weakness. It yep. can be very much a preschool, primary school attitude in the mining industry. And I've had a friend of mine who was a good friend. He committed suicide uh, on the 28th of December in 2016. And he used to bounce off me all the time whenever he felt like he was feeling suicidal because I felt the same way. Um, and I just want to touch on that for a second. People don't understand what it's like to be like that. When you are sitting in a hole, that everyone talks about the hole of, of depression and all that type of thing, and that you should turn to your family, you should turn to your friends, you should turn. When you feel that, you've, that you're not only just in the bottom of the hole, but you're digging your hole deeper, you feel that you're a burden on your family and you feel that you're a burden on your friends. You feel that you're a burden on everyone and that the world is better off without you. The clarity in that, that the world is better off without you 
is what gives you peace. So when you get to a stage where you feel suicidal, you feel that you're doing everyone a favour. You're not running from the, the things. You're not running from anything. In fact, it takes more courage to take that step because you're ending everything. People don't understand that, that when you do feel that, everything is clearer. You don't feel that depression. You feel, you feel that, that release. You feel that everything is just going to be better for everyone. And I got to a stage where I was driving my haul truck down the road, coming back from one of the waste stumps in up at Nalagon. I was working up at Nalagon at the gold mine and I was heading straight towards the edge of the pit and I was ready to go over the edge of the pit when I seen my daughter flash in front of my face and my daughter's my, my pride and joy. So my son, but my daughter's very close to me and I hit the brake straight away and I snapped myself that, that one, that one um, vision pulled me straight out of that hole. And then I went and got help and then I started getting, trying to become better and in, in, I became a lot better. But um, my friend Dave, he didn't, he couldn't. And he had a beautiful family, lovely wife, lovely sons and everything. And, and um, I got annoyed at him and I stopped talking to him for a couple of weeks. And I said to my wife just after Christmas one day, you know, I've got to go and see Dave, make sure he's okay. And then I found out that he'd, he'd done what he'd threatened to do for years. And that was a very sad moment. And that's um, something that people don't understand in the mining industry. They, they look at people who do that and they think they're weak or they think they're cowards. They don't want to face their actions. They don't want to do this. Those people are idiots. And that's the, that's the industry that we work in. We work in an industry full of people who refuse to get out of their own ways to see what's going on in the world. And they target the people. They bully the people. They, they, hurt the people that are around them, all these suicides and that that happen on mine sites aren't because of how long, how long the swings are. It's because people don't have the support and people don't have the understanding of what's going on. It takes a special person to understand suicidal tendencies and suicidal thought. And yeah, well, it's the best way I can put that. It's the best way it takes a special person to understand that type of thing. And there's just not the support there for it. People like Saw Palili who, who go, um, he's ex-world UFC champion. He goes from mine site to mine site with, with Macca Mining, McMahon's Mining, and tries to teach people about it because he's been there as well. He stood on the edge of that cliff ready to jump. And uh, I think that that's related from my whole raising, my whole self-image, you know, going right through to my martial arts and then coming through into, into an industry where there is zero respect that can push you straight towards that. And it, it, it highlights your depression and it highlights your anxiety and it highlights everything, especially with people who have no idea on how to deal with it. Yep. Jeez, I went off on a rent there. <laughs> Sorry. No, that. That's good. Go to the less questions I have to ask, but I will ask the question. <laughs> with, yeah. with, with Dave committing suicide and you know, actually, so what you told me was you're kind of like his support base. So he'll bounce things off you because he knew that you're going through the same type of thing. And then you said you had, didn't have contact with him for a while. Then when you did have contact with it, oh, well, when you went to have contact with him, you realized he was dead. Did you feel any guilt or anything for, for not being there for him? Absolutely. I still beat myself up really badly over it. Um, when I talk about it, it's very hard for me to talk about. And, you know, I had to bring it up in my counseling when I went to counseling. Um, I felt, I was angry at him because he got drunk and drove his car into a tree. And it wasn't until after his suicide that I realized that that's what he was trying to do at that point. Um, 
I blame. I, I don't know why, but I blame myself so much for for him going. Um, because as his wife said, you know, I was the closest person to him. He had a lot of mates. He, he was a very popular guy. He was a very, very, um, a very happy guy. And I think that I was one of the few people that he actually told how he was feeling. Um, no one else could see it. And when he obviously died, a lot of people took it as, you know, a real surprise. And, um, yeah, I did feel very bad. And I still do to this day that, that I could have done something to stop it. Is your counselling helping you in that way to realise that it's not actually your fault? It did help. Yeah, it helped. It helped a lot. Um, I, that's me. And the more everyone gets to sort of know me is that I, I'm like Atlas. I carry the world on my shoulders and I tend to take every part of it. Um, everything that happens, I generally take it on as my fault. And that's part of my growing up. That's, you know, that's part of it that I dealt with as a child. Um, I feel that I could have done better, but I didn't. And my my counselling just sort of put that in perspective for me. So let me know that there's nothing I can do. There's there's people are going to die. People are going to do this. People are going to do that. And that's their journey. It's not my journey. And that's hard to sort of take on. If that makes any sense. That makes perfect sense. Uh, Everyone's got their own stuff. And yeah, you never know what's going on through somebody else's mind. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, what do you actually do in counselling? I just talk. I talk about um, <laughs> without letting too much chat. Um, but no, I just talk. I just talk and unload. You know, I, I'm married to a beautiful wife. I love my wife and I love my children. But with with the type of depression that I have, I don't always feel that I. She's my wife's been through some hell, and I don't feel that I can unload that on her. So, I need someone to unload on. And that's what the counselling does. It gives me that, that doorway and it gives me the tools to be able to cope and breathe and, and realise that life goes on. Yeah, well, it makes sense because you don't want to... She's been through a whole lot of stuff. I won't ask you about her stuff because I'm guessing it'll be private and stuff. But um, oh, I'm happy to talk about it. Oh, okay. That's actually that. something that probably help people. Yeah. You know, keep going with your question. Oh, oh yeah, that's where I was going with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so basically, because she has been through so much, you don't want to like overload or put all your stuff on top of her just to, to like bring her down. So yeah, it makes perfect sense why you go to a counsellor, like a third party, so you can offload that there so you're not putting all that pressure on her. But can you go into her stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Just on that, it it's also helps that you have somebody who doesn't judge. That's the other thing. Oh, um, yeah, that's a big one. Yeah. Yeah, with, with her, um, I've, I've spoken to her about this, so I've told her that I'm coming and talking to you so she knows that I'm telling you about this. Um, so essentially it started when my first, when, when my daughter was born, um, my wife started getting really angry and really annoyed all the time. And a lot of mothers will know this, it's, post, it's, it's part of um, postnatal depression. My wife was going through it really hard. And then when my son was born, she went through it, it sort of took a next level up. And we were sitting there one day and I said to her, look, there's something seriously wrong because she was always angry. She was always sad and she was always depressed. And I said to her, look, you, you need to go and get some help for this. It's, it's eating you alive. And so she started going and getting help, but it wasn't working. It was like she was still hitting this wall. And one day I said to her, there's something deeper. There's something more painful that you're not letting out, that you're not telling anyone. You need to let it out. You need to get rid of this theme that's holding you back. And um, we were sitting there watching TV one day. We were actually all in a really good mood and you know, having a bit of a laugh playing with the kids. 
she said, I've got something to tell you. And I said, yeah, what's that? And she said, oh, my father raped me from when I was eight years old until I left the Philippines. My wife's from the Philippines, obviously. Yep. Until I left the Philippines when she was 24. And I went, what? And she said, don't hate me for it. I, can't, I don't, didn't mean it. And I said, well, first of all, I don't blame you. But I, I said, it puts everything into perspective. It puts everything. And this is one thing that having the type of life that I've had, you, you can sort of see I've had, um, well, my brother was raped by my uncle and there's, there's been a fair bit of sexual abuse in the family and that. You can see certain things that happen and it's throughout every single person who's been sexually abused. You can see things that have happened through their life that click into place when, it, when the truth comes out. And if, so the first thing I said to her is, did you tell your mother? You need to tell your mother straight away. And she said to me, I can't. She, my mother would have known about it. And I said, well, first thing, she would not know about it. She wouldn't have any idea. You need to realize that this man was a predator. This yep. man would attack you when no one was around. She thought about it for a second. She went, huh. So she rang, she made the, what, what I consider to be the most heroic thing she's ever done, probably the hardest thing she's ever done. She rang her mother and told her about it. But her mother was devastated. We brought it to Australia and, <coughs> excuse me, um, we brought it to Australia and he just sort of helped her ease into the idea of what had happened. And then I, once that was all sort of out the way, I said, well, you, uh, talk to your sisters about it and see, because it'll be your sisters will have been affected and so will your brothers and probably a lot of people in the neighbourhood. And as it turned out, yeah, the sisters were affected. The brothers would never admit to it, but you can see in their behaviours that, that there probably would have been some attacks going on there as well. But yeah, so she she's suffers post-traumatic stress disorder from having been the brunt of sexual assault for so long. So yeah, that's the reason why I couldn't talk to her about what was going on with me is because with her, it's almost to the point you don't know who you're talking to most of the time when it, when it happens. Like if I'm going through, if I'm going through a, a stage where I'm feeling really low, if I come to talk to her, I might be talking to the eight-year-old girl that she's holding on to, or I might be talking to the 24-year-old woman that she's holding on to, or the person who's really frightened that she's holding on to. Yeah. So with her getting her help, I don't burden her with what's going on with me, so I go to a counsellor. Is she going to a counsellor as well, or she just talks to you? How does she handle that? She well, <laughs> Now it's all drugs, but um, <laughs> she was going to a counsellor. <laughs> But uh, not not for bad drugs, the good drugs. Hang on, not the, the the prescribed drugs, not the not the good drugs. Oh, um, yeah. No, hang on, not the bad drugs. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, she was going and seeing someone, but it became really hard because they're only available. And this is something that sort of needs to be fixed. This is my stand on. This needs to be fixed. She's gone through this, but the people that are able to deal with post-traumatic stress disorder, and it's a specific thing, are only available three hours once every two weeks and she works so it makes it really nearly impossible for her to go and see this person plus the fact that all these other people are dealing with the same thing trying to go and see this person as well this needs to be addressed there needs to be more help for people like that um, but there's not and in fact um to put things on top of me i last last time i went to the um psychologist i was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder because of an event that happened up at Nullagine. Yeah. Um, not as severe as hers, but yeah, it's something that I deal with as well. Um, and my psychologist is more than capable 
to help me through it because it's not a severe, it's not really as severe as, as hers. She mm. needs to, to be, needs to be fixed. If that makes sense. Did you actually meet her dad and stuff like before you got married? Or- yeah. 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 When I, I had no idea. Yeah. Um, I had no idea. We, I thought he was a great guy. There's a funny anecdote to it. it was, we, we do a lot of karaoke, like Filipinos do karaoke and I do it. And it's a funny story. We, we, the first time I met the father, I started singing Wonderful, What a Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong on the karaoke. And he loved it. He thought it was excellent. Anyway, flash forward to when he died, we went over there and one of my mates was over there. I was introducing him to some people and we were sitting around the table having a few beers. It was at night. Now, over there, the tradition is the body stays in the lounge room while the money's raised to bury them. So um, at the front, there was all gambling. There was heaps of people, just rows and rows of tables, people gambling and everything. And the body was still in the lounge room. And um, we were having a few drinks and, you know, having a great time and trying to, trying to, uh, what's the best word? Every time you do something, you include him being there, you know, um, whether they're gambling, if there's four people gambling, one one of the winnings goes to the family to put to put him in the ground. You know, the day of the funeral, we put him in the ground and we're sitting around the table having a few drinks and I started singing What a Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong and all of the lights went out in the house except for the light that was above us. Yeah. And then when I stopped singing it, the light went out and all of the lights turned back on. It was just a weird moment. And then it was after that that we found out what he'd done, about two or three years after that that we found out what he'd done. But, yeah, I, know I never went to his grave or anything to visit him. And she won't go there and none of the family will go there. He's, he's done the family pretty much. Yeah, no, he doesn't really deserve your time. So, yeah, so you obviously think, feel that that was him, that was a spiritual encounter, the lights with you singing that song. You felt that that was his presence, his spirit coming back. Doing that lights. Yeah, just to say hello. Yeah. That, God, that's uh, crazy. It was a bit of a funny thing. Well, mm. here's one for you. So you said he died and they they propped up his body and so you're gambling playing cards with his dead body here. Is it preserved in any way or is it just rotting? Yeah, they, they don't prop up a dead body like we can the Bernies. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be funny. Um, no, he's in a coffin. He's um, oh. They change the preserv- preservatives that are in his body every couple of days it's a glass coffin so he just sort of lays there and you know just it looks like a doll yeah um so yeah they every couple of days they come in and change out all the preservatives in his body to keep him minty fresh and um well generally that that they're gambling and that lasts for about seven days so you can picture the philippines is quite a warm place um but yeah they, they do their best to keep candles burning and take any smell or anything out Oh, crazy. It's a, it's, a, it's a very surreal experience. So I'm guessing that's part of their, uh, I was about to say religion, but I guess it'd be more culture. Do they ever cre- culture, yeah. cremate their bodies over there or is it always burial? Um, they generally, they, it depends on the, the money, um, how much money people have, because it's a third world country. Yeah. So um, if the wealthy people can afford the big mausoleums and things like that, but the poor people, if they can't afford to bury them, then they'll cremate them. But yes, some places like Baguio up north, they wrap the body. They, they, they wait till the body's mainly been taken and they'll keep the bones and they'll bring the bones there for special occasions to celebrate. You know, that's more in the tribal areas and that though. Do they keep the bones as a skeleton or they just have it in a bag and they just play with a femur or... 
the skull or something. <laughs> you know, they just, I'll use a finger to pick their teeth, man. They'll, um, <laughs> they'll keep them wrapped up. <laughs> keep them wrapped up and they'll bring them out and present them as a skeleton during a special oh, yeah. occasion or something like that, you know, so the family's always with them. Oh, crazy. Hey, can you tell us about this? Um, oh, sorry, you go. You're right. You're right. Oh, I was just going to ask about this, about this event in the mining industry that you suffered post, oh, I'd say postnatal depression, uh, PST from it. PTSD? Yeah. Okay. Um, I was on a dozer. It was actually up at the same, it was in the same pit on the same way stump as when I started driving towards the pitage. Um, we were setting up that pit actually, and, and I was side cutting the, the tip head. Um, I was on the dozer just getting the tip head ready to, to open it up, and because we just finished building the ramp and that, and I said to the truckies, you know, tip down the bottom there, don't come up here. And yep, no worries, yep, no worries. And as I'm pushing off, one of the people, and this is where the, the preschool, the preschool um, attitude comes in. One of the guys who was a dozer operator, I won't mention any names or anything like that. He was a dozer operator, and he. Uh, was annoyed about being on a dump truck and so I was pushing off the tip head side cutting it and as I've come back I had no idea that he turned around down the bottom of this ramp and just reversed up he didn't call me up didn't had no idea and the grease pod used to be next on this particular dozer was right next to the window on the left hand side of the, the dozer so you really had even less visibility so anyway I was reversing back and I heard crackle 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 stop and I went that's strange so I looked over my shoulder on your making sure I hadn't hit something because you can see on a dozer you're sort of sitting facing the right a little bit and I could see I hadn't hit anything on the right and then I'm looking in front went to go back a little bit further and couldn't go back and then I sort of looked out the side window couldn't see anything and then I leaned forward a little bit and I'd reversed into a truck yeah and the the dovetail of the truck was about a foot away from the back of my head um um it scared the it scared the crap out of me yeah. I came pretty close and it, it wasn't such a big incident but it was enough that I was already in that state of depression and always in always you know already in that um that state of mind and when I seen my boss he walked up and he seen how serious it was he took his hat off and leant over and threw up all over the ground he was really frightened I opened the door the look on his face I was sort of staying in the cab but it was it was safest until we knew that there was no electric charge or anything through it and he, um, the look on his face was sort of what threw me over the edge. I just went, wow, that was coming close. And um, yeah, that, that threw me into, into a state of stupidity. And it wasn't long after that that I um, had that experience of driving down towards the pit edge. And it wasn't long after that that I decided to get help. So yeah, that was the, that was the one that threw me over. Oh, crazy. It just shows you how quickly it can all happen, eh? One minute you're pushing the tip head and the next minute, especially if they yeah. don't call up. There's, yeah, there's so many blind spots and dozers, trucks and everything that in the industry. That yeah, well, it's the reason why we have these rules and the worst thing was is he was a mate. His mate was a, was a safety rep. He wasn't even on site who just took his word over everything, didn't bother taking anyone else's word over it, went into bat with him and pushed all the blame onto me and... Um, and I was punished pretty hard by the by the mine site for the next six months. I was punished, and I got to a stage where I was only put on a dump truck from then on, which is fair enough. You know, you get your punishment, you cop it. Yeah. But I went through a stage where I felt like I was on death row. You know, I was like, 
um, and in my head, it's how I, how I rationalised that I was on death row. You know, I was I was sitting there, I was put on a on a truck, I was made to feel like I had absolutely nothing to look forward to, at all. No no reason to want to try any harder. No reason to want to try and do any better. I was on a truck, and that's it. From that point on, I was a truckie, and that's all I was ever going to be. There was nothing. There was no reason to look to strive forward. There was no reason. I was just waiting to, to leave. That's, I was just waiting to lose my job. That's all I was doing for the next six months. And it, it's, it's funny now because that's all I do is drive, drive a truck at the moment. But for someone who was trying to push their way into the industry and learn more and learn more and learn more, it was a very hard, hard lesson to learn. It's a very hard thing to do. Was there any um, teasing or belittling or anything after that thing? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It was relentless. And, you know, it, it's funny, uh, one of the guys, the guy who actually hit me, he and I are still good mates. Yeah. Uh, the guy who I actually hit, sorry, he and I are still good mates. Um, and the supervisor, it, it was, this is what I was going to earlier, the supervisors aren't trained to know how to deal with people with depression and anxiety. Um, he used to love the conflict. He was a bikey, he, you know, the, the big tough guy with the tattoos all over his chest, to shaved head, you know, just loved to talk about how he used to beat people down and all this type of stuff. And he loved the conflict. He absolutely reveled in the conflict. But I ended up showing him the type of person I am when we had a cyclone come through and everyone put their hands, started kicking their feet, shuffling their feet. You know, people do in the industry. I don't want to do this. It's not my job. And I went out there and got stuck into, into work and he just looked and went, wow. And he realized the type of work that I can do and I'm capable of and the things that I'm capable of. And after I started getting counseling, started getting help and that I turned that corner and I started to rebuild myself again for the second time in my life. Um, and I showed them what I was capable of. And then he put me up into a leading hand and then he stopped dealing, stopped doing night shifts. So I was supervising, I was supervising all the time. And funnily enough, where we work, one of my digger operators is a digger operator on another crew there. Um, and, you know, the, the stuff that I was starting to do was starting to enable me, open me up to things like ERT. And I was going to ERT all the time and I actually got to, to save someone's life. And it was, I actually got to save a few people's lives, but it was, um, that started rebuilding me and started making me more confident and feel better and feel better and feel stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. And in the end, the people that caused the trouble for me ended up realising they couldn't get anywhere and ended up leaving and karma got back to them. So. Yeah, it was a bit of a different thing. How did you save someone's life? Um, my digger operator, um, and I, a, a few people, I, I helped a few people out, but the, this is the best one. I reckon it's the best one. Um, digger operator I had, he was older bloke, smoked about 500 packets of cigarettes a day and drank, drank about 900 litres of beer a day. And he'd already had four triple bypasses and didn't tell anyone when he came in. And um, we were on stand down one day because it was pissing down rain. No, we couldn't work. And the next thing I'll get an ERT call. Pandy, you need it up at work. Got to get into work. Go, go, go. I've got to get into the camp. Go, go, go. So I'm straight up to camp and he's on the ground. He's had a heart attack. And one of the women from from uh, ISS, I think it was, I can't remember. Uh, Morris's, I think. She was over him with a, with a giving him oxygen and that and we, me, uh, the medic and another medic 
were there for the next four hours just convincing this guy to stay alive and um, doing CPR and that on him and that, and, you know, um, just trying to keep him alive. Well, we waited for, <laughs> it was funny, it was, uh, we, we called up for a medivac and um, they sent in the single seat chopper, which was useless. <laughs> and then we ended up having to do a river crossing with him um, to get him out to an airport that was flooded to try and get him out. But it was funny. For four and a half hours, we sat sat with him and tried to convince him there was reasons to stay alive. And for for people who have done this thing before, your server would be able to tell you as well. Yep. Half of it is stopping people letting go. You can deal with the mechanics of keeping the body running, but if someone wants to let go, you'll never stop them letting go. And it was funny. I, I I'm actually the person who made the call to his wife to say, you know, you need to get to Perth. He's had a heart attack, and we're going to fly him down to Perth. And he rang me every week for a year and a half to thank me again for saving his life. And it was the um, best feeling in the world. It's just phenomenal when, when, when you realise that you've actually done something that's been so helpful to someone instead of being so destructive like you've been for most of your life. It's amazing. It's an amazing feeling. Does it make you want to go down the path of becoming a medic full-time or anything? I've been to a couple of places where I've wanted to become a medic. Um, yes and no. Um, I, I've been fortunate. I, I'm <laughs> that, that boss used to call me action man because I'd run straight into the fray and um, I, I, that's that's me I'll run straight into the fray but sometimes it's more dangerous than good I've just been fortunate I don't know if I could do it full time yeah um, I think that there'll be one or two times that it'll, something will hit me and and it'll destroy me but I don't know yeah I don't know no well we're about to run out of time Panda um <laughs> Dude, that went quick. Hey? I was up basically almost 40 minutes already. Hey, is there anything you'd like to let the audience know or anything before we wrap up? Just keep smiling. Don't take it seriously. The world's not... The, people don't care. You, mine, the mining industry is not the real world. Um, I think that's the, the biggest thing I can take out of everything. There's always... And there is always a corner. There's always a light at the end of the tunnel. How you deal with each situation is what makes you and, and makes you stronger and makes you better. So people just need to realise that there is always someone there and that none of it's real. You just, just have to take it as it comes. Yeah, one thing that I've learned is that when you actually tease someone that has depression, you're actually confirming those negative thoughts that that person already has in their head. Well, better wrap it up. So, well, that's a wrap. I'd like to thank Panda for coming on the show and I'd like to thank you, the listener, for listening. Please tell a friend about the podcast and have a fantastic day. All right, bye.